Good morning. Happy Advent to you. Let's pray. God, we're uh, just grateful to be here, to be your son, to be um, uh, one in whom you um, have called yourself. God, thank you that we belong to you, that, uh, that you have redeemed us, and that you are uh, in the process of sanctifying us uh, so that we look more like Jesus. And one day, um, our, our faith will become sight. We will be with you in, in all of your perfection, whether there be no more sin, suffering, or death. That God, grateful for this Advent season where we get to uh, celebrate and rejoice um, in your faithfulness to your promises of, that were made throughout the entire Old Testament over thousands of years to bring forth Messiah who would rescue us from our sin and bring us into a relationship with the one who created us. And God, I thank you for the sure hope we have that you will come again and that you will set all things new. In the meantime, God, we need strength uh, to, um, to live this life in joyful submission to you. And God, I thank you that, that in this passage in Isaiah that you remind us of who you are and how it is that you help us as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so God, I pray that you would um, extend grace to us today, that you would uh, help us just understand more of your character, uh, Lord, that we would lean in um, in the midst of uh, a weary and uh, troubling world that we live in. We love you. We thank you that you love us more. And God's people said, amen. So as uh, Kelly just read, we are in Isaiah chapter 9, um, verses 1 through 7. Today we're going to really concentrate on uh, verses 1 through 5, and then the first part of verse 6. We're going to uh, concentrate on a uh, wonderful counselor, that Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Advent means coming or the arrival of something or someone. The advent of spring is in the air, we might say, or the advent of winter is in the air. It's not, but it should be in the air. Advent comes from the uh, Latin word adventus, which comes from the Greek word parousia, a word used for the coming of Christ in human flesh, the first coming, the first advent, and also his second coming, when he will return to judge the living and the dead. In this advent season, the church looks back at God's faithfulness to his promises to bring forth a king who would save us from our sins and restore us to a relationship with our creator. So the advent season is a time for rejoicing in Jesus' first coming while we await his second coming. And we need strength while we wait. We need strength to persevere and trust in his promises. And that involves waiting. Um, I'm not very good at waiting. I don't know about you, but I don't like to wait. I don't like to wait for my coffee. Um, I don't like to wait for doctor's appointments. I certainly don't like to wait in roundabouts. Um, roundabouts are the worst. I think I've talked about that before. You can tell I've got some bitterness with people that are in roundabouts. I even um, hate waiting at the stopped at a red light when there's somebody in front of me in the right turn lane at a red light, and they can turn into that, into that lane. There's actually a, a lane that you can actually turn into. You don't have to stay stopped until the light turns green, that you can turn right on a red light and accelerate. And what I want to do in my waiting is I actually want to take down their license plate when they do well, and I want to like write them a postcard and say, nice job, you're the only one I've seen all week that has stopped and turned right and accelerated and not waited for a green light. I don't like waiting. Waiting's hard. We're impatient people. 
There's been times in my Christian life where I've grown weary of waiting. I've grown weary of all the, all the sin and brokenness in this world. I also grow weary of my own weakness and my own temptations. Jesus is going to return. I know it. All my, he's going to return, return and make all things right and new. The Bible tells me so. I don't know if it's going to happen in our lifetime. I don't know if it's going to happen in my grandkids' lifetime. But we can hang to, onto the promise that he's going to return and make all things new. One day there'll be no more sin. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more death. But sometimes I need a counselor. I need counselors to help me walk in the truth and to find grace and mercy in time of need. And I've got brothers and sisters. Some of you are my counselors. My wife is my primary counselor. My co-pastors are counselors that I need and I lean into. But you know, over the last year, I've engaged a professional counselor for the very first time in my life. I know that might be a shock to some of you. I don't know how you feel about that. Um, But God has given us primarily himself, the wonderful counselor, to counsel us. He's given the body of Christ. And there are times where you might need a professional counselor. Over the last year, I've experienced the gloom of anguish, as Isaiah talks about in chapter 9. And I've needed some extra help to get unstuck so that I can joyfully persevere in the midst of weariness. It's not a prescription. We all need counselors. That is a prescription. God tells us that. We don't all need professional counselors. But any counselor, human counselors, if our counselors don't point you to Jesus, the wonderful counselor, they're just putting a band-aid over your pain and wounds rather than bringing healing and restoration. I would imagine that there are some professional counselors out there that are not Christians that have God's common grace and bring value. But I'll just say it again, that there's a counselor that doesn't ultimately point you to the wonderful counselor. He's just putting a band-aid on what it is that makes you, that, 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 that brings you um, angst. Fear, sorrow, sadness, pain, and sin are unfortunately a part of every human life. There is anguish in this life. But there does not have to be gloom in the midst of anguish. Jesus came to free us from the slavery uh, of the culprits of our anguish. Sin, Satan, and death. And one day, I'll say it again, he'll make all things new. In the meantime, while we live in this already but not yet kingdom, how are we to be strengthened? To whom do we go for grace and mercy in time of need? It's rhetorical. He has a name. It's Jesus, our wonderful counselor. If you're a movie watcher or an avid reader of great stories, even not so great stories, you know that the best stories chronicle a journey toward redemption in the face of hopelessness. All great stories have redemption in the face of hopelessness. Just when you think the main characters have made substantial progress toward the goal, whether it be in a relationship or in a physical journey through danger towards safety, there's always a moment when some awful setback happens that brings you to the edge of your seat, causes you to turn the next page. 
something so dramatic that it makes the reader think that the situation is utterly hopeless. But then the climax turns everything around. This last surprise, this this turnaround climax is what J.R. Tolkien called the catastrophe. EU catastrophe. It's the opposite of the catastrophe that started the story's drama. This is the moment when everything reverses. It's what paves the way for the story's ultimate resolution. And once you know how stories work, you see the narrative everywhere, all throughout life. We start longing for the narrative. You see it in comedies, in superhero movies, and even romantic flicks. Somebody conned us into watching what we thought was a Christmas story the other day, Grumpy Old Men. There's even a catastrophe in there. You're going like, no, don't do that. But it ends up in a pretty good ending. Don't go watch it. And don't blame me if you watch it. Stories work this way because the true story of our world works this way. The story of redemption for God's people works this way. And what we're going to see today in Isaiah chapter 9 is that when the night of life for God's people was at its darkest, the dawn seemed like it would never come. And God was working behind the scenes, fulfilling his promise to save a people for himself that would be with him for eternity. And there was nothing that could separate God's people from himself. God uses king and kingdom language to describe his relationship with his people. God's kingdom is described by Eldon Ladd as God's people in God's place living under God's rule. God's people living in God's place living under God's rule. You and I were created to live in God's kingdom. That original kingdom was described as Eden and it was perfect. It was our first ancestors walking in the cool of the day with their creator. And in Genesis 128, we learn that humanity was entrusted with the royal task of subduing and having dominion over all of the creation. But Adam failed in his calling. And God promised that on the heels of Adam's failure, God promised that a true and better king would come to conquer evil and to restore humanity's rule over all the earth. Next comes Abraham and Sarah. God promised them in Genesis chapter 17 that kings would come from you. And this promise was eventually narrowed down to the line of David in 2 Samuel 7, where Nathan prophesied this to David. When your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, you die. I, God, will raise up from rise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. But the children of promise continued to walk in darkness disobeying God's commands while building their own kingdom. But even in humanity's unfaithfulness, God was faithful to his covenant promise to bring forth an eternal kingdom that would come from the line of David. About 300 years after God's covenant promise to David, and roughly 700 years before the birth of Jesus, God was was preparing to judge the southern kingdom of Judah, here in chapter 8 and chapter 9 of Isaiah. And he was going to judge them because of their sin and disobedience. And the instrument of God's judgment was the Assyrian army that was rising in strength to the north of Judah. 
Listen to Isaiah chapter 8, verses 21 through 22. Understand the hopelessness here before we understand the hopefulness. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upwards, basically shaking their fist at God. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And when all human attempts to remedy the gloom gloom of anguish fail, God intervenes. After the darkness, the light of grace will dawn for the people of God. This is you catastrophe. You can bank on it for God's people every time. And we see in verses 1 through 2 that the gloom of anguish at the, at the end of chapter 8 transitions to the triumph of chapter 9. He says in verse 1, but or nevertheless there will be no gloom for her, God's people, who are in anguish. The remnant of God's people would not be spared from judgment, but they would not experience the ultimate gloom of anguish. They would receive God's judgment. And praise be to God, I'll say it right now and I'll say it again, that if you know Jesus Christ today, you will never experience the judgment of God. That Jesus drank the cup dry. But in that day, God had to judge sin before Jesus came to ultimately judge sin. And God's people experienced judgment, but they did not experience the ultimate gloom of anguish. You see, it's never hopeless for God's people, no matter what you're going through. They would experience the darkness of sin and trials, but in their anguish, Isaiah Isaiah reminds them of their hope. Anguish or distress is a guarantee in this life. But gloom comes forth from an anguish that is void of hope. You see, we don't have to have gloom in our anguish. And if we have gloom in our anguish, it means that we have lost hope or we have hope misplaced. So God's children who experience the deep darkness of trials and sin will have a dawn. And interestingly enough, this light or this dawn will arise out of the same place as the darkness sprouted up. Listen to the second half of verse 1. In the former time, he, God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he made, the, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The land of, of Zebulon and Naphtali was referred to as the Galilee of the nations because it was a melting pot of ethnicity. It was also the northern border of Judah. It was through this land that the Assyrian army would attack God's people in the southern kingdom of Judah. God would bring contempt or light distress into this land. But amazingly, this land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, is the same land where Jesus, 700 years later, would start his public ministry and shine the light of the glory of God into the darkness of human hearts. Listen to Matthew chapter 4. Now, Jesus, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles or nations, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. 
And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus started preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You see that in this Advent season, we can rejoice in knowing that God is a promise keeper who fulfilled his promise to bring forth a seed from Adam and Eve that went through um, generation after generation, generation after generation, through Abraham, through David, and eventually brought forth Jesus Christ. And the way to enter the kingdom is by faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And it comes by repenting. The long-promised king had arrived. Our promise-keeping God is continually working from uh, working uh, good from bad in our lives. This is eucatastrophe. And I want you to notice in verse 2. That, they, that, the, that God's people didn't create their own dawn. They saw a great light and it shined on them. Verse 2, And the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, and on them has light shone. Light came out of death. Darkness and exile would not be the last word for God's people. A promise of a king and a kingdom would be fulfilled, and this is all by God's grace. And when the remnant in Judah sees the enemy gathering in its northern border, they wonder if they will even survive. But but Isaiah prophesies unexpected triumph. Not simply survival, but victory. Not the people's victory, but God's victory. A victory through the one faithful Israelite, King Jesus. A victory that will expand the eternal kingdom of God. And we see that in verse 3. He says, not only have you saved the remnant, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You, God, have multiplied the nation. Not only will he save his people, he will increase their numbers. The eternal promise-keeping God is spreading the light to more and more people, multiplying the remnant into a great multitude that no one can number. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And their joy is not meager, it says in verse 3. Isaiah compares it with the joy of workers at a harvest, or the joy of a person on a, receiving a bonus on payday, and gladness of soldiers dividing the spoil. Or like the celebration of the World Series in Game 7. Even when somebody sat the bench and didn't contribute to the game, they stormed the mound. It's that type of celebrating and rejoicing. The triumph of God's grace brings joy and gladness. It will overwhelm all failures and anguish. How will he do this? How will he free us from slavery to sin and Satan? How will he defeat these enemies and the final enemy death? It's in the most unexpected way. Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. We've got to ask ourselves, what is the day of Midian? What is the day of Midian? And we see the day of Midian in Judges 6, in chapter 6, 7 and 8. The day of Midian was a great victory in the book of Judges. It's a clue that the victory Isaiah foretells will be accomplished in the same unusual, unlikely, and miraculous way. Isaiah prophesies the removal of the yoke of slavery and the burden they carry while breaking the rod of the, of the people that imprison them, uh, that, that they're using to beat 
um, God's people. Isaiah is thinking back to a day when the powerful Midian army was defeated at the hands of a freedom fighter by the name of Gideon. And Gideon's really no hero. Gideon's a faithful man. And he was, and he was a judge over, over Israel, over God's people. And the Midianites, the powerful Midianites, over 120,000 strong, were coming to wipe out God's people. And Gideon's army was already small. There was 33,000 people in his army, men. They were already under, under man to face the Midian army of 120,000. And God's ways are never our ways. He's always doing things in ways that we wouldn't do them. Gideon broke the power of the Midianite army by being faithful to God. God told Gideon to reduce your army from 33,000 to 23,000. Gideon did it. And God said, that's not enough. I want you to reduce it down to 10,000. And you can just feel Gideon shaking and, and his faith, maybe doubting God. I don't know. But he continues to be faithful. And eventually God, God says, I want you to reduce your army to 300 men. And I promise defeat over the 120,000 Midianites. God's unthinkable strategy was to have Gideon and his mini army blow trumpets and break jars and hold up torches and maybe say, boo, I don't know. But the 120,000 men were so confused in the dark of night, hearing the horns, um, uh, hearing the horns, um, hearing the glass breaking, and seeing the torches, that all 120,000 slaughtered themselves. Isaiah was looking ahead to a liberator of God's people, who was even better than Gideon, who will also come in an unexpected way to conquer our mortal enemies. Our liberating king will not only bind all the forces of evil, he will one day put a final end to all conflict. In verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The, article, the articles of the army's clothing won't be needed anymore. There'll be no more war. Oppressive enemies all gone. Every mechanism one day of, uh, for tyranny will go into the bonfire of God's grace. And we see in chapter 5, we see and we hear the passive voice will be burned. And this hints at the victory that is not our victory. It's not our accomplishment. We get to participate in the victory. We get the benefit of the victory. But it's not our accomplishment. We step onto the battlefield after the victory is won. And all we do is celebrate that it's Jesus that won the war. And I just answered the question. The next question for the fearful and forgetful Jews living in the southern kingdom had to be, well, how? Who? When? Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. A child is born tells us, tells God's people who are waiting for the heir of King David that he's on the way to fulfill God's covenant promise. That it's a seed. He'll be born of a woman. A child is born. A son is given doesn't merely point to a boy, but to God so that we would know that this child is divine, the eternal Son of God, one with the Father. 
We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This is, this is foundational to understand, uh, understand the gospel and God's economy. That Jesus needed to be fully human in order to be our substitute. And he needed to be fully God in order to, for his obedience and suffering to be uh, perfect and to satisfy God's justice. John lays this incredible truth out in the beginning of his gospel in chapter 1. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He was, Jesus was fully divine, 100% God. Verse 14, and the Word then, God eternal, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This child born of a virgin, is fully human and truly God. A child is born, a son is given. Isaiah didn't write to a mom and a dad, a child is born and a son is given. Or to us. Or to us, a child is born, a son is given. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. The eternal Son of God, the Word made flesh, was given to you and me so that we would have eternal life, and not just eternal life, but life abundantly. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. The one given to us is our King. And kings historically stood in God's place to lead, protect, and rule God's people. But all prior kings were imperfect and failed and were overthrown. This king is perfect and wise in his teachings and is wise in his governing and not only in governing the universe, but you and me personally and individually. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are aspects of his character that describe who he is and how he helps his people. And in our remaining time, we're going to explore what it means for Jesus to be our wonderful counselor. And a counselor, by definition, is someone who brings help or advice or therapy. One who's able to help others or make wise plans. Counselors help bring understanding they help bring rest and peace, especially in times of confusion or trial. We all need counselors. If you don't have a counselor, a spouse, somebody in the body, you're living outside of God's best for you. Historically, kings had the primary job of guiding, directing, and protecting the people under their authority, as I mentioned they're supposed to make wise decisions for the benefit of the kingdom and its people as a whole. But since they're, since they're human, they have, they have human wisdom. They have limited wisdom and insight and vision. And they rely on personal counsels. They have personal counselors to advise them. We all need a counselor. Proverbs eleven fourteen tells us that. Where there is no guidance, people fall. But in an abundance of counselors... There's safety. This child son who reigns and rules is an exception. He holds all wisdom and knowledge. He knows the end and the path to get there. 
in Handel that wrote Handel's Messiah and sung it as right to, to, to say wonderful counselor in describing him. You see, we flippantly use wonderful for whatever we like. It's a wonderful day, a wonderful meal, a wonderful vacation, a wonderful walk in the park, even Wonder Woman and the boy Wonder. But God is the one who is wonderful. He's full of wonder. But I think here, wonderful is a noun. When the child is called wonderful, it's the most precise word for deity. He is a wonder. He is God. He is divine. The word sets the tone. And the psalmist describes this wonder in Psalm 78. They forgot his works. God's people forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders. In the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan, he divided the sea and let them pass through it. He made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. This wonderful, miracle-working, promise-keeping God is present and active in all of creation, but especially in the lives of those he has called to himself. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. In my humble opinion, the best counselors are the ones that have walked in my shoes. The best counselors aren't the best educated necessarily. I want counselors that have not just walked in the shoes of textbooks or, or walked in the shoes of their professors. I want counselors that in some way, shape, or form have walked in my shoes, who've experienced the temptations that I'm experienced, who have suffered in similar ways to I'm suffering. Jesus, wonderful counselor, has done that without sin. The author of Hebrews says that in Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest, a counselor, if you will, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is the wonderful counselor. He always has an opening for you. And there's never a charge because he's paid it all. You can draw near to this counselor with confidence in all of your weaknesses. He will never turn you away. He will never shame you. But instead, he'll give you grace and mercy in your time of need. Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Father, is no less approachable today and no less compassionate today than when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago. This counselor doesn't have you fill out a questionnaire to learn about you and to find out what ails you. He doesn't have you fill out a questionnaire to diagnose your problems and questions. He's the wonderful counselor who knows you the best, but still loves you the most. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139. It's long, but it's helpful. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? 
Or where should I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, if I say surely the darkness shall cover me, and, light about me and, and the light about me by night, be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. There is wonder in knowing and being known by a benevolent, saving counselor who doesn't simply fix us, but redeems us and heals us and restores us. The primary purpose of human counselors is to help us find rest, peace of mind, and hope. And we all need human counselors. We need each other. But we need counselors who will point us to the sympathizing, grace and mercy filled, promise keeping wonderful counselor, especially in times of anguish. Believer, Jesus broke the yoke that enslaved you to sin and Satan, and he's put a new yoke on you. He invites you to come to him daily to find rest from the weariness and heaviness of life. Now let's close with these words from Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. It's a promise. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you um, dove into our mess, knowing that we were weary and heavy laden, that there was no hope for us. I thank you, Lord Jesus, the Word of life, the eternal Son of God. I thank you that you came and took on human form. And that you were obedient, the obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And I thank you that you drank the cup of God's wrath dry, so that there is none left for the children of promise to drink. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that even though you sit at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, that you are as near as our breath, and that we can confidently come to you to find mercy and grace in our weakness, in our time of need, knowing that you'll never turn us away, that your door, so to speak, is always open, that you'll never shame us, that you, what you have for us is grace and mercy and healing and ultimate restoration upon your return. God, we say thank you and help us rejoice in the midst of weariness. 
We love you, and we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.